Welcome to episode two of By the Numbers Basketball with me, your host, Jacob Birkinshaw. Today, we're going to start on a new series of pods on By the Numbers. We're going to be looking at the greatest teams of all time. This is going to last the next few weeks. We're going to be doing it by era. We're going to be looking at the best offenses, the best defenses, and then we're going to bring it all together for one final episode where we're going to look at the greatest teams of all time. And I'm hoping this is going to be a slightly more unique look at some of the things we're going to be talking about than some other pods. I like to think this is quite a good idea, and I, I really hope you enjoy it. Thanks. So, we're going to look at the greatest teams of all time. Now, this is quite a meaty task to get into, as I'm sure you can imagine, because there are a lot of teams. In fact, I looked at 1,455 teams, to be exact, to come out with all of this. So, I hope I've crossed my T's, dotted my I's, and by the end of this, hopefully you'll agree with my assessment, even if you don't agree with the teams that come out on top, even if you think, oh, but this team would beat this team in a series, they match up so well. That's not what we're looking at. We are trying to look at the greatest seasons teams put up against the opposition they faced. I don't care about how the Golden State Warriors are going to defend Shaq in the post. I do not care about how Magic Johnson would do against, insert team, against the Boston Celtics in the, in the 60s. I really, that it doesn't interest me. I'm trying to look at differentials. I'm trying to look at how well you did in the season in question against the opposition put in front of you, and also how good was that opposition, and a few contextual factors. Now, this was originally going to be a decade, so I was going to look at, I was going to combine the 50s and the 60s together, I was going to combine the 70s by itself, I was going to look at the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. I wrote out those lists, and honestly, I thought they were really boring. Um, there was a lot of redundancy in those lists. I So instead, I split it up into three distinct eras. Pre-merger. So we're going to be looking at 1955 to 1976. Then we're going to go from post-merger to Jordan's 1998 retirement. So 77 to 98. And then we're going to take 99 until now as the modern era. And as I said, I did this because there is so much redundancy in the decade lists. For a little hint, uh, in the 60s, I wrote out nine of the 10 best teams in the 1960s were the Boston Celtics. I don't want to talk about nine Boston Celtics teams that are quite similar for an hour. And I think some of you, some of you Celtics fans, might enjoy that, might you know enjoy falling asleep listening to how good the Celtics were. I'm not really interested in recording that. I would much rather talk about a few different teams, a few different situations and scenarios throughout a larger period. I mean, we're talking, you know, the 90s Bulls. All those Bulls teams get onto the top 10 list in the 90s. I don't want to talk about 
Jordan's Bulls team six times in one pod. So instead, we're going to be dividing it by these three eras. So then, you know, those Celtics teams have to compete with the Knicks teams, the Bucks, etc. in the 70s. Those Jordan Bulls teams have to compete with the Magic Showtime Lakers and the Bird Celtics. And those modern teams like the Spurs and the Lakers and the Warriors and the Bronze teams, they all have to be thrown into a melting pot together and we get to see who comes out on top. I thought that was more interesting than just doing it by decade. I hope you find that more interesting as well. So, as I said, this is going to be based on single season performances, pillar to post, beginning to end performance. So from the very first game you play in the regular season until the last game you play in the NBA Finals, if you reach the NBA Finals. They all matter. They are all going to be counted. So two things that I want to make clear that I do not care about coming in here. One, how many games did you win? I'm never going to reference unless... There is a particular reason, like a win streak or something. I'm never going to reference how many games a team won in either the regular season or the playoffs, unless the playoff is like a really interesting situation. The second thing, it's not going to have any bearing on how this goes, is did the team win the title? That's right. I don't care in this exercise whether you won or lost the title. Now, I think both of those things, winning games, winning titles, not considering those in deciding who the greatest teams of all time are, I think that's quite an atypical way to approach this series. And I really want to explain why. So why don't I care about wins and losses? I, I've tried to think of a few ways to explain this. And to explain it properly, I need to give you a crash course in a political phenomenon called gerrymandering. For those of you that know what gerrymandering is, you might see where this is going. But if you don't know, gerrymandering is basically manipulating the boundaries of voting areas, the chunks we count votes in. So say we take one area of a country and that area has 50 people who vote for party A, 40 people who vote for party B. We count up all those votes and we say, right, that area votes for party A. That's one nil to party A. Even though there's 40 people that voted for party B, there were 50 for party A, party A wins. One nil party A. And we do that for all the areas in a given area of land, maybe America, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, wherever you want to consider. So gerrymandering is manipulating the physical boundaries of those voting areas so that those 1-0 wins to party A, 2-0 to party A, 2-1 to party A, etc. results end up being in favour of the party that's doing the gerrymandering. So that's a bit abstract, but this is how things like, for Americans, an example would be in the 2016 elections. How that happens where Hillary can have more actual votes, more people actually voted for Hillary Clinton than voted for Donald Trump. But because of the way the voting system is set up, Donald Trump wins the Electoral College. This is 
basically how that happens. There, There's more nuance to that. This is a very, very basic overview, but that's generally how this happens. So let's, let's look at a given example. Say we have 50 people. 30 of those people vote for party A. They will vote for party A. 20 of them will vote for party B. And they live in a block, just a block, and they're evenly distributed. If we drew five even boundaries in that block, we're talking and then we count up all the votes. Remember, they're evenly distributed. That would end up being a 5-0 win for party A. They won every boundary we drew because there are always more, more people that vote for party A than vote for party B. But if party B is already in control and has control of deciding what the boundaries are for voting, then we could have gerrymandering where, say, party B could make it so there are two districts with nine people that vote for party A, one person that votes for party B. That would mean they're very strong for party A, but then in the other three districts, there's only four people in each that vote for party A and six that vote for party B. We still have 30 votes for party A, 20 for party B, but now party B has won the district battle three to two. Same votes, different result. Now party B is the winning party. Now, that's a basic overview of how gerrymandering works. How does that relate to what I'm talking about? So the fundamental issue is that by dividing the basketball a team plays in a given season into these 48 minute chunks, and then calling that chunk either a one or a zero, we're putting them into binary systems. We're saying it's either a win or a loss. It has to be one or the other. We're missing the overall picture. Much like gerrymandering, we are not counting every vote. We're splitting these votes into groups and saying there is more of A than B. This goes in the A column. There's more of B than A. This goes in the B column. You know, you had more points in this 48 minute stretch. That goes in the win column. You had less in this 48 minute stretch. That goes in the loss column. There's no consideration to how many points were scored, the pace of play, anything like that. Whereas by using plus minus data, we're treating the entire season and the playoffs. So you win the title, let's say you played 110 games. We're treating this as just one long game, basically. The team played, you know, what, four, 5,000 minutes of basketball. And we just considered it in for the sake of this. We just considered it. They just played 5,000 odd minutes of basketball. And every 48 minutes or so, depending on whether it went to overtime, we switched the opposition. Now, we need to incorporate other factors into that. Like I just said, we switched the opposition. So we have to incorporate strength of opposition into our calculations. We have to look at, right, that team that switched out, how good were they against other teams? And how does that all fit together? But that allows us to see who the real best teams are over these long stretches. The way I describe it is we count every point. So now I've advocated for using plus minus data over using wins and losses and 
I've advocated for the use of direct democracy over representative democracy, which I do, on to point two. Point two, that championships don't matter. Now, obviously, championships matter a hell of a lot. They are the name of the game. You win a championship or you don't. But the best team doesn't always win a playoff series. Therefore, the best team doesn't always win a championship. In 2007, the Phoenix Suns outscored the San Antonio Spurs in six games and lost. If they get more random luck across that tiny six-game sample, they probably win a ring. Now, I say probably because we can never know for certain. However, they outscored the San Antonio Spurs over six games. The San Antonio Spurs would then go on to sweep the 2007 Cavs. So I say probable because it's a very high probability. I think we can, we'll just leave it there. So while this list will be littered with champions, there will be, most of these teams will be champions because Champions are usually the best teams. They are because, you know, you still have to win those games. You still have to, even though maybe in there are these anomalous things like the Suns being outscoring the Spurs and still losing the series. Like Denver, actually, I'm recording this as Denver is about to play a game seven against the Clippers in the playoffs. Denver were outscored by the Utah Jazz in the last series. And unless they win this game, this game seven tonight, by 13 or more points, they will have been outscored by the Clippers in this series as well. But they could still win. They could win by two points, go to the conference finals. They would have been outscored in both series as they won. That happens. It is quite anomalous, but it does happen. And that's why we take plus minus data as more important. But it's we're not going to hold championships against these teams. And it's, I'm going to note when, how well a team did that year. So if a team gets to the finals and loses, I'll say they got to the finals, they lost to this other team. If they win, a, if they win the ring that year, they won the ring. If they got knocked out in the conference semifinals, I'll make note of that. I can't remember off the top of my head if that actually happens. Don't think it does. We'll get there when we get there. So most will win. Some won't. That won't be held against them. Now, let's get on to the formula. The formula that is deciding this, that is ranking these teams. This is all going to come down to what I called in my Jordan vs. LeBron pod, my final plus minus rating system. To delve a bit deeper into that, uh, how that works is I consider playoff and regular season relative plus minus. Relative plus minus is your plus minus data versus the team you are playing. Say you go into a playoff series and the team you're facing has a 110 offensive rating and a 105 defensive rating. Now let's say I go in there and my offensive rating is 110, my defensive rating is 105. I need to put my offensive rating against their defensive rating. So my offensive rating was 110. Their defensive rating was 105. I'm plus five. Their offensive rating was 110. My defensive rating was 105. Against them, I'm negative five. Negative is better because that means my defense is allowing less. Okay? So that's how relative 
net ratings work when I'm doing this. That's how I calculate that in the playoffs. If you want to go do that yourself, I find them to be really interesting things to look at over while playoffs are happening. You can get really, you can really get more. So like this playoffs, just as a little example, Orlando did quite well against the Bucks in their relative plus minus data. Their offensive and defensive ratings against the Bucks were quite good compared to what the Bucks regular season offensive and defensive ratings were. So they did quite well, even though they lost the series in five. We can still look at that and say, oh, they actually outperformed what we would expect, which is good. So we take that playoff data, we take regular season plus minus data, which is SRS adjusted, simple rating system, basketball reference users, which adjusts plus minus data for strength of opposition. Now, I've kind of retrofitted their SRS data I've taken what the plus minuses actually were, what the SRS spits out, and I've kind of retroactively gone back to those plus minus things and looked at right. So what would that be when we're taking SRS into account? Like maybe plus minus says they're plus 9.5, SRS says they're plus 9.32 or whatever. Let's work backwards. Let's you know see how we can get that 9.5 down to a 9.32 relative to what the offense and defensive ratings were. We're going to take all that. We're going to put it in a ratio of three to two. So your playoffs matter three and regular season two, 60% to 40%. So it's skewed in favor of how well you do in the playoffs versus better opposition. Now it also incorporates contextual variables like league expansion which is actually going to be quite important in this pod specifically league expansion so how many new teams come into the league in the last one two three five ten years because generally expansion teams unless you are an expansion team which stumbles on an all-time great player in the first couple drafts which spoiler that happens here you are going to suck for a long time and that is going to artificially inflate other teams. So we're going to be incorporating that. We're going to look at when inflation happens in terms of expansion. We're going to also be looking at the median quality of player in the league, the average quality of player in the league. And we're going to be looking at the top end quality. We're going to be incorporating those studies I've looked at into this data. That all gets funneled into this final plus minus system. And that might seem like it's kind of a linear progression. That, you know, the average player in 1964 is worse than the average player in 1974, 84, and 94, etc. And over a long stretch of time, that's true. From 1964 to 2004, the average player increases tremendously. However, when we go down to these smaller chunks, there are peaks and valleys. The average quality of player in the mid-60s actually, from what I can tell, seemed a bit higher than the late 60s, early 70s. Same with depth of top-end talent. There was certainly in that mid-60s where you think of those great 60s players, Russell, Wilt, West, Oscar, etc., etc., there was more players of that quality than there were of that quality in the early 70s. In the 70s, because of things like the ABA, because of bad drafts, there was a bit of a dearth of real quality top end and median. 
So that's all going to be included. Finally, a thing that I call SRS drag. What this is, is that simple rating system. We're going to be incorporating basically how many really terrible teams there were in a season. So if there was, you know, the Philadelphia 76ers of 2014 or whatever, you know, that team which was, which went like 10 and 72, whatever it was, that team, we're going to be using that data to bring down top end teams because top end teams in those seasons are higher than they should be because if they're playing these teams, they're artificially inflating their numbers against really bad opposition. Again, this is something that will happen in this episode. It's going to be less common as we go through, although I think that variance season to season and within season team variance has increased as we've gone through NBA history. And that's something we need to look at as we go through as well. So basically, fundamental points here are process is king. The process is what matters. How you get there is more important than what happens because we get trapped in this tautology, I think, of the good team won the championship. Why did they win the championship? Because they're a good team. Why are they a good team? Because they won the championship. That's not telling us anything. We're fo we need to focus on the process more than the results because having a good process doesn't always get you the best results but it is the most replicable thing you can have. And having a bad process might still end up with good results, even though the process itself is not optimal. So that's kind of my introductory spiel that I had to do as we went into this whole exercise. In later episodes, that's gonna get a lot smaller. I might give little introductions about what final plus minus is again for you guys to look at, but Generally, I'm going to um, stick to just, you know, little catchphrases. Process is what's important. Plus minus data is what's important. And if you guys have been listening to the whole series, you'll know straight away what it means. You'll, you'll have listened to this part. Hopefully you haven't just skipped over because it's been 20 minutes of me not talking about any teams. Now, let's get into these teams. We're going to be doing five teams and we're going to start with an honorable mention and luckily this honorable mention is the sixth team but luckily it allows me to go into another thing that i kind of need to look at with this and that's that the sixth team on this list is the boston celtics 1960s boston celtics now why is that important because this is the only team from the Boston Celtics that makes this list. That's right. The Boston Celtics won 11 championships in this era I'm looking at. This is the highest they get. Sixth in the entire run. Why is that? Well, it's basically 1960 is when the real top, top end Defense. The 1960s Lakers, the 1960s Celtics, not Lakers, under Bill Russell, are without question the greatest defensive dynasty of all time. We'll get into it in later episodes. There are standard deviations of difference between this dynasty and any other defensive dynasty. It is simply 
not even a matter of opinion. It's just objective fact. This is the greatest defensive dynasty ever. However, offensively, this team struggles. They never really put together. Once Bill Russell really goes into his prime and the 50s team starts to fade away, offense really dries up for this team while defense continues to set records as the greatest ever. Just in my plus minus data, they set the record four times. In 60, 61, 62, and then 64, they break their own record as the greatest defensive team ever. But 60 makes it because 60 is the only time where they have a positive offensive rating in my plus minus data. In all the rest of them, they go down. They go to, you know, negative 0.3 offensive, negative 0.7, negative 1.5, etc., etc. They keep getting worse and worse as they go through the 60s, this 60 to 65 stretch where that's the real, the heart of Bill Russell's prime, where he is the offensive juggernaut and one of the greatest, most enigmatic players in NBA history. But why this really matters is the reason why these teams don't get higher is because you can be a 10 out of 10 in something. But if we're counting two things, if you're 10 out of 10 in one thing, 5 out of 10 in another. You aren't as good as someone who is an 8 out of 10 and an 8 out of 10. You know, 10 plus 5, 15, 8 plus 8, 16. Quick maths. That's So what we're looking at, we average out both. If you're very good in average, it's not as good as being very good at both. That's quite simple, and I think, and that's why... These Celtics teams, they are consistently good. From 57 to 69, these teams are consistently at least very good teams. But only in 60 do they get close to this top five. They actually have six of the teams under the Russell Celtics would have made the top 15 if I was doing all top 15. I'm not. And why I think that this team actually works out where it does, where it has a positive offensive rating compared to what later teams would be, is because we have this kind of, this nexus point where those 50s teams of Kuzi and Sharman, they cross paths with the Bill Russell as the kind of, he's the centre. For all these teams, he is the centrepiece. But we have Kuzi and Sharman, and they're crossing with Tommy Heinsohn, and Sam and Casey Jones coming off the bench. There's a lot of scoring, and Bill Russell has now rounded, maybe not quite into top, top, top form, but he is now in his prime as you know the greatest defensive juggernaut in NBA history. And they actually get dragged up to, you know, this is when they set the first clear record as the greatest defensive team of all time. And at the time, they were the greatest team of all time in my book, the 1960 Boston Celtics. They would be beaten as we go through this exercise. At the time, they were the best. Some numbers for you. I'm going to do this by percentiles because I think that's easier to grasp for people rather than just saying negative four, plus eight, et cetera, et cetera, when you don't really have context for what that means in the NBA history, in the grand scheme of things. So... Boston Celtics 1960, 
Their regular season offensive rating is 48th percentile. Their regular season defensive rating is 99th percentile. Overall, the Boston Celtics 1960 regular season is 97th percentile ever. When we get into the playoffs, their offensive rating goes up a bit. Their defensive rating drops. The playoffs are a bit more skewed because of different amount of games played because not all teams make it. I'm not going to be providing percentiles. I'm just going to go on to their final plus minus percentiles. So when we get to final offensive plus minus percentile, the 1960s Boston Celtics are 60th percentile. Defensively, they are 99th percentile. And they actually work out as the fifth best defense ever by my metrics, which adds up to what would be a plus 6.2. And they get into the 97th percentile of all teams ever by my metrics. They are a top 50 team of all time and they are the best team of the entire Boston Celtics run. And I, I probably want to do more in the future because this might be quite controversial to say those Boston Celtics teams, only one of them was a top 50 team of all time. But yeah, I'm sticking to it. The numbers, they just don't paint it as this team that some people see it as. This is a defensive juggernaut, limited offensively during Bill Russell's prime Luckily, when they actually, one team, one that I'm actually going to talk about now, just a little bonus, 1964 Boston Celtics. Their uh, offense is about fifth percentile all time. It is terrible. Absolutely god awful. Their defense is not only the greatest of all time. The 1964 Boston Celtics, easily the greatest defensive team of all time. Like it's not, it's not even a debate. Honestly, there, there's, there's, it's, it's not close. But that team is that's really kind of the poster child for what these Boston Celtics teams were. And I think 1964 is really Bill Russell's magnum opus, where he has nothing. Around. He doesn't have nothing. He has a baby Hondo who is, he's Hon, he's John Havlicek. He is a Hall of Fame player. 1964, he is already very, very good. And they have Sam Jones, who's really carrying the offense, especially in the playoffs. Sam Jones really carries that offense. But this team is built on the fact that Bill Russell is a step above anyone else defensively. And I said on another pod a long time ago, on Overstated NBA show that Bill Russell's worst defensive season is better than the next best player's best defensive season. And I stick by that in terms of what he does relative to the era he's in, the impact he has on these teams relative to the impact, say, Hakeem has on the Rockets or that Tim Duncan had. Tim Duncan might be closer in terms of what we can actually draw out from the numbers. I think Hakeem is a better defender. He just had worse teams around him. Maybe Garnett is in there as well. Nate Thurmond is underrated. We'll actually mention him a bit later, but Nate Thurmond for me gets in this conversation as definitely a top 10 defender ever. But Bill Russell is a step above everyone. It's just that 
offensively, they were very limited. And you can't, when you're putting them up against the very best teams of all time, it lacks something when you get, I mean, this team has, what is it, six top 100 teams ever. Six of them were these Bill Russell Celtics, but only one of them ever got into the top 50 and none of them got close to really top 20, top 10, top 30 team ever. So that was me kind of defending myself against why I have the 11-time champion Boston Celtics as not even having one of the five best teams in this whole 1955 to 1976 era. I'm done with that. We're on to the actual list. Number five, the New York Knicks, 1973. Walt Frazier's year. Now, this team is, let's go by the numbers first. Regular season, offensive percentile, 75th percent. Regular season defensive percentile, 91st percent. So very good regular season defensive team. They overall, they are in the 91st percentile all time. We get into the playoffs and honestly, Walt Frazier blows me away, man. Walt Frazier is, he's so, so underrated all time. I actually think if we were just judging peak level, just peak, peak performance, Walt Frazier is probably a top five point guard of all time. Like I would put him ahead of Jason Kidd. I would put him ahead of Gary Payton, ahead of John Stockton. You know, there would be, it would be between kind of him, Steve Nash and Chris Paul for who gets in to that top five, who cracks the very top, because I think Magic, Steph and Oscar are locks for that top five. It's then who, le- who gets left off between Chris Paul, Steve Nash, and Walt Frazier. But Walt Frazier is an absolute animal. And these this regular season and playoffs really typifies that. That I think he is probably, in my book, either him or Jason Kidd is the greatest defensive point guard of all time. Like, way ahead of guys like Gary Payton, honestly. Like, that might seem harsh to you it's not to me when i look at these numbers there's there's walt frazier is an absolute boss he is the greatest player in new york knicks history and this 1973 season was all about him because willis reed aged in dog years he's 30 he is already he's not washed but he is already in terms of minutes he is the sixth man on this team honestly go look at it he plays the sixth most minutes and he's 30 years old. You've got guys like Jerry Lucas, Dave DeBusher, who are older than him, who are still key rotation pieces. Willis Reed's body gave out on him quite young, even by the era standards. But this team was still a strong, hard-nosed team. I mean, you had DeBusher, Willis Reed, Bill Bradley, Jerry Lucas, Earl the Pearl, and Walt Frazier running point. It's a great great team but then you get into the playoffs Walt Frazier particularly Walt Frazier but I want to give some shout out to Earl the Pearl Monroe he also really steps up as a scorer in these playoffs and between them they just run run ragged against you know the bullets 
The Celtics run them close in 73. That Boston Celtics team is very good. That, by my reckoning, that 73 team is actually the best team the Boston Celtics put together in the 70s. That includes the two title teams they had in 74 and 76. That 73 Boston Celtics team was something special, but they lost in seven games to the 1973 Knicks, who would then go on to gentlemen sweep the Lakers of 73 in, I can't remember if that was West and um, Wilts last year, but that's kind of as they're really rounding down their careers in their mid to late 30s. But yeah, this is Walt Frazier. Just go go look at man. This, this season is wonderful. I, I have so many good things to say about Walt Frazier and even Phil Jackson. Actually, we get to the playoffs. Phil Jackson is kind of, he's in that eight-man, seven-man rotation. Actually, he has the set, plays the seventh most minutes in the playoffs. He plays every game and, yeah, puts up, what is it? He puts up nine and four in the playoffs. You you go get him, Phil. That's, that's, that's nice. So what does this work out as in the final plus minus? We have... In the playoffs, they absolutely run rampant. Offensively, they blow these teams out. Now, defensively, they're not as good as they are in the regular season, but offensively, they more than make up for it by absolutely... uh, Between Earl and Walt, they just blow these teams off the floor. And that actually brings them up to a final offensive rating in the 95th percentile ever, a final defensive rating in the 90th percentile ever, an overall plus minus of plus 6.6. So remember, the Boston Celtics, 960, were plus 6.2. So there is a noticeable difference between them. But they still end up as final plus minus percentile, 97th percentile ever. They are a top 50 team. As I said before, with the Boston Celtics, if the Boston Celtics were a top 50 team, this 73 Knicks team is top 50. I can't remember exactly where they come in that top 50, but it would be somewhere around, I think it's 44th. They are the 44th best team of all time, in my opinion. The 973 New York Knicks. And I'm sorry to all New York fans out there, all four of you that actually still have real love for this team. But this is the best New York team ever. This is the highest they will come in any of these. And I'm sorry. Number four, we have the Milwaukee Bucks in 1972. This is actually the first time we're going to tackle a team which did not win the title. The 73 Knicks won the title. The 60 Celtics obviously won the title. 72 Bucks didn't. They lost. They didn't even make the finals. They lost in the conference finals to the LA Lakers. Ironically, they actually they lost in six, similarly to what I was saying earlier in that interesting Suns and Spurs series. The Bucks outscored the Lakers in six games and still lose. And it's an it's an interesting team, I think these the seventy two Bucks because we have very very strong regular season. Like I'm just gonna. Regular season offensive percentile, 95th percentile ever. Defensively, 97th percentile ever. Overall, 99th percentile ever. Sixth highest 
regular season rate SRS rating ever. That's that's closer to about the 99.5 percentile of teams in the regular season. They are, you know, one of the very, very greatest regular season teams ever. And in the playoffs, that kind of falls apart offensively. They are defensively, they really lock up. They really grind these teams down. Offensively, they kind of fall off a bit. And I don't want to say it's on Kareem. Kareem doesn't exactly lay an egg. But Nate Thurmond, told you we get back to Nate Thurmond, in the uh, first round for the Golden State Warriors, does an incredible job stopping Kareem. What I've been able to find the footage, Nate Thurmond is an absolute animal. I'm pretty sure there's a quote from Kareem actually saying that he knew he played well when he scored on Nate Thurmond. And Kareem, he never played Bill Russell, but he did play Wilt. And Wilt is one of the greatest defensive players ever. And Kareem still considered Nate Thurmond to be a big accomplishment, even though he had that to compare it to. That happens. Nate Thurmond has a great series. The Bucks still crush them. That Bucks team is very, very good. You have Bob Dandridge. You have an older um, Oscar Robertson, who's still very good, but he is older now. He is playing more of a secondary to tertiary role on this team. Kareem is kind of, he is the fulcrum, both of everything they do offensively and defensively. So when he has, he goes, as goes the Milwaukee Bucks. And when Nate Thurmond is able to stifle him, even though the rest of the Golden State Warriors don't have enough, it's a portend of things to come. And it's exactly what happens in the conference finals where Wilt does an incredible job of blunting the efficiency of Kareem. Even though Kareem, in that series, if you just looked at the bot score, you would see he puts up 34 points, 18 rebounds, 5 assists in 6 games. Incredible stat line per game numbers. His true shooting, in the regular season, his true shooting is 60%. In that conference final series, it is 48%. That's the difference between going down as one of the greatest champions ever, a legendary back-to-back champion team, and getting knocked out in the conference finals in six games. That's the type of thing that will do it to you. And, yeah, they are an incredible team, the 1972 Bucks. One of the greatest teams. By my calculation, they're a top-five team to, to not win the championship in their year. And that's because... They came up against the LA Lakers in 1972, who are an absolute buzzsaw. That team is, it's incredible. We might even get to it later on this list. No spoilers. To round out this 1972 Milwaukee Bucks team, final offensive rating, 88th percentile ever. Final defensive rating, 98th percentile ever. Remember their playoff defense was monstrous. The regular season defense was great too, 97th percentile. That rises to 98th percentile when we incorporate playoffs and everything else with it. A final plus minus plus 7.3. Now we're talking about real top, top level. They're in the 98th percentile. They are 26th best team ever by my books. That team is incredible. Remember the um, the 73 Knicks were plus 6.6. This team plus 7.3. 
So a real noticeable difference there. We're really breaking into the top, top, top level of teams. And remember I said they lost to the 72 Lakers. Well, number three, 1972 LA Lakers. Surprise, surprise. The Milwaukee Bucks in 1972, they were that good. They had they could only lose to another team on this list. And that was the 1972 LA Lakers, who are also one of the greatest regular season teams of all time. I just want to run you through their numbers because they're just staggering. Offensively, 97th percentile ever. Defensively, 98th percentile ever. Overall, 99th percentile ever. The third best regular season SRS rating ever. Third best. They are an absolute, an absolute buzzsaw, this team. There is no other way to describe it. It's just what they do in the 1972 season is staggering. I mean, if you don't know, they won 33 games in a row, still standing records. They actually won those 90, those 33 games in a row after Elgin Baylor retired after nine games. And it's really, you now you have a 35-year-old Will Chamberlain, you have 33-year-old Jerry West, who is still incredibly good. Jerry West is really embracing this heliocentric role. I mean, he averages in the regular season, we're talking 26 points, four rebounds, 10 assists. The kind of stat line you would see, you know, someone like Luca put up, but with more rebounds because West was only like six foot two or whatever he was. It's that kind of heliocentric, everything on offense runs through him with the ball in his hands. And to go along with that, you have Gail Goodrich, who is an absolute lights out scorer. Like he is putting up 26 points. He's actually a top scorer on that team. With a team with Will Chamberlain and Jerry West. Gail Goodrich is a top scorer. That's how good he is right now for this team. Will Chamberlain has finally, he's 35 years old. He has fully embraced his Tyson his inner Tyson Chandler. He is old man Will Chamberlain only focused on playing defense, putting up 15 points. He just wants to grab rebounds and stop the other team from scoring because as it is with Will Chamberlain, all he really cares about is stats. Or does he? We'll see. So West is, yeah, the fully-fledged, heliocentric PG, before that's even a thing. The team rolls 33 straight regular season wins after Baylor retires. When we get to the playoffs, actually, West kind of gets schemed out of it. Goodrich really steps up as a scorer. Wilt really steps up. But West really plummets. And interestingly, we're going to bring it back to something we said earlier. Those numbers are really skewed, actually, by in the finals, where they go up against the Knicks and kind of run the Knicks off the floor in a gentleman's sweep. Frazier, Walt Frazier, does an incredible job on Jerry West. I can't remember off the top of my head, but Jerry West's efficiency is somewhere in the low to mid-30s. Like, he's a non-factor. And this team still wins very easily because there's so much synergy, because Gail Goodrich is on fire. Will Chamberlain is having his last hurrah. You still have other important playoff pieces like Jim McMillan, Happy Heston, Pat Riley, another legendary coach, is... 
Also, is he the sixth man on this team? He is. In terms of playoff minutes, he is the sixth man on this team. But this team was very starter-centric. So, you know, it's not like he was getting a lot of time out there. He was getting, what, a quarter every playoff game. Still played every game, though. So, good on Pat Riley. He is the Phil Jackson of the 72 Lakers. Good for him. They get to the finals. They get blown out, actually, in game one, completely, like, by 25 points or something. Then they roll the next four games by a combined 44. Not really that close. This team really blew teams' doors off. That The fact that they were outscored by the 72 bucks just shows you how good both those teams were. Those 72 Bucks and Lakers were a step above everyone else that year. And it, it really shows when they play each other, when we see how they play each other versus how they play everyone else. They play each other very close, very evenly. Everyone else, they just ragdoll the league that year. Just absolutely. I mean, the Chicago Bulls in 1972 are a very good team. I've actually written about a 4,000-word article on that era, on Norm Van Leer and Jerry Sloan, because I think that backcourt in particular is absolutely fascinating. It's a really sad, wonderful story of basketball. They get blown off the floor by the Lakers, 4-0 in the first round. And that 72 Bulls team in my plus minus is actually the best Bulls team ever until they get Michael Jordan. And obviously they get a little bit better than just being blown out in the first round. So the 72 LA Lakers, third best team of the pre-merger era, 55 to 76. Oh, you know, I just remembered I didn't actually read out their final ratings. So Lakers offensive rating, 90th percentile, defensive rating, 98th percentile, Final plus minus 7.3. Final percentile, 98th percentile. We are now, we've just cracked top 20. This 72 Lakers team is in my book the 20th best team ever. That's the last one you're going to hear because I don't want to give away too much about the ending podcast. And I can tell you the two teams that come out on top in this, depending on how where I draw the cutoff point, they may well be both of them in the final episode so i won't be telling you their actual ranking but for this one 72 lakers in 20th before we get to number two i want to take a quick interlude just to talk about something i said at the top of the episode about inflation about expansion in the early in the late 60s to early 70s there are i believe if i'm remembering correctly the league goes from nine teams. So there's the eight original teams. There's the Atlanta Hawks. Well, I'm going to call them by their modern names. You have the New York Knicks, the Warriors, the Celtics, the Kings, the Lakers, the Pistons, the 76ers, and the Hawks, the original teams. Then in the 60s, we add the Wizards, the Bullets at the time. So we're at nine. From 1966 until... About 1971, we add a total of about another eight teams. So from 
66 to 71, the league has inflated from nine teams to about 17. We are talking a huge amount of teams, and a lot of these teams will go on to be very good. They are very bad in the late 60s and early 70s. And what we are seeing, I think, as a result of that, we are seeing this SRS drag I was talking about. We are seeing that come to fruition with these teams absolutely destroying the regular season numbers and some playoff numbers, but less so in the playoffs. In the regular season, they are really crushing these terrible teams who are a year old, two, three years old, especially once we get, I mean, if you had noticed, two of the best teams in 72, one of them in 73, no spoilers, but there will be another early 70s team in the final two teams we're going to talk about. All of these teams have SRS ratings that are in the top 10 ever. And they really blow. And I've tried to, with my final plus minus, I've really tried to incorporate that. I've really tried to take that on board and kind of try to balance that out with the rest of the teams in NBA history. And it's always going to be an estimate. Like, I don't want you to take these lists as gospel. A lot's gone into them but they are not the um, they are not the total truth they nothing in this can ever be the total truth and i never want anyone to come out of these feeling like this is set in stone the list these are the greatest teams of these set eras that's not the case they are the best teams when i've created these formulas and i've tried to incorporate as much intelligent information as i can into these formulas this is what it's come out with and i'm just going to read it to you as it comes out and i'm going to make notes where i think there's little discrepancies that i'm noticing this is something i'm noticing and it's that this early 70s stretch from about 71 till about 74 there are a lot of these teams that i think are really taking advantage of a poor league in the regular season and are really inflating their numbers and i've dragged it down a bit I have I've pulled it back down a bit to be in line with the rest of teams in NBA history based on what I'm seeing. It's still not perfect. I don't know if it can ever be perfect because we are talking about different games almost. We're talking about very different eras, different games, different teams. You can't make perfect one-to-one comparisons. Anyone that tells you they can is a liar. Don't believe them. You can't. We can just do the best with what we have, see what comes out, and remember that there are always extra contextual issues the numbers aren't capturing. This is by the numbers basketball. It's also by the philosophy basketball. We need to start talking about that philosophy in these. I'm going to flag these issues up as and when I see them. And I thought this, when we just had two back-to-back 72 teams in the top five teams of a 20-year span, that can happen. Obviously, I'm not saying that's it's all down to this. These two teams are very good. But I think some of this early 70s, the numbers are just insane, honestly, when we compare them to other teams in NBA history. I mean, the Bulls and Warriors struggle to reach these regular season numbers that some of these teams are putting up. That's just how crazy good they are. And these teams are not as good as those other teams I mentioned that would come later in NBA history. So there's something happening there. I just wanted to flag that up now. And hopefully 
give you a little bit more information about this era. And when you see numbers about, ah, oh, the 72 Lakers, blah, 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 oh, the 70s Bucks, blah, 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 they did this and that and their numbers. Remember, there are these contextual issues that are very important to remember. Number two, getting out of the 70s finally, let's talk about the 1967 Philadelphia 76ers. Try to say that a few times fast when you're drunk. The 67 76ers, 67 76ers. Regular season numbers. Offensively, 98th percentile. Defensively, 80th percentile. Not great defensively by the averages we, we're looking at here. I mean, that's still 80th percentile in all of NBA history. By the greatest teams ever, it's pretty mundane, pretty average. Overall, though, they slot in 98th percentile and in the regular season. And this is really... 1967 is Will Chamberlain's magnum opus. Like 1964 is to Bill Russell. Like, you know, you could say 2016 is for LeBron James or Steph Curry or whoever, like whatever you want to say. 1967 is Will Chamberlain's greatest season. And he has a really strong supporting cast around him. He has Hal Greer, who's one of the greatest shooting guards ever, Chet Walker, who's a wonderful player, Billy Cunningham, who is a young player at this time. He's like in his early 20s, but he will go on from this to become an MVP caliber player, actually, in some seasons. That's how good he is. And he right now is playing in a kind of fifth starter, sixth man role. Better than that as an actual talent, but that's the kind of role he's playing in. So we're talking about real all-time greats around the Will Chamberlain, who the the best way I can say it is Will Chamberlain really reaches a nexus point. I think I've used that phrase already. It applies here. I'm going to use it again. It's a this beautiful moment where he fits into a team structure so perfectly. A quote I love that Oscar Robertson said that I've used on another podcast is, the most difficult thing in basketball is to know when to shoot and when to pass. I think 1967, maybe 1968, but I think 1967 is the only year I can definitively say Will Chamberlain knew when to do both. I don't think there is any other year where that is the case. He is absolutely destructive this year. I mean, just to give you an idea, right? Basketball Reference has this thing called um, adjusted shooting, where it tries to, it takes true shooting added which is how many more points your true shooting rating is adding. Based on the shots you take, how many more points are you adding than an average player would take in those shots? In 1962, Will Chamberlain's 50-point season, he puts up, he puts up about 3,000 shots and he adds about 450 points over an average player in that season. In 1967, Will Chamberlain takes about 1,100 shots and he adds 440 points. I mean, his scoring that year was so, so incredible. I mean, that is one of the most insane stats I've ever heard that I found looking up information for this pod. It's, it's staggering what Will Chamberlain did that year. And 
I'm very much in the Bill Russell is better than Will Chamberlain camp. I very much believe that. This season is what makes it a debate for me. This season tells me that, oh, if Wilt maybe goes into the right system, maybe gets pulled to the side earlier and says, you know, your numbers aren't what's most important. You want to be a legend, win championships. Stop worrying about getting all these shots. Start worrying about playing defense. Start worrying about setting up other people with your post-game, with cuts coming off. And let's play a real intelligent team basketball he could have been, I think, maybe the greatest ever. If this 67 season is anything to go by, if this was what he could do for multiple other years, rather than just this year and to a lesser extent 72, we could be talking about the GOAT, the unquestionable GOAT. That's what makes this a debate for me. When we get into the postseason, maybe you know this famously, they are the only other team apart from the 1958 Hawks, to beat the Russell Celtics in the playoffs. Only other time that happened in Russell's whole career. And in 1958, Bill Russell had a very severely sprained ankle in Game 3, which a lot of people say really turned that series in the 58 finals. Red Auerbach, being the coach that he is, refused to allow them to use any excuses. They just got outplayed as far as he's concerned, but let's be real, there's probably something to losing your best player, your defensive juggernaut in Game 3 of the Finals. Just ask the Golden State Warriors last year what happens when you lose a talent that good in a game. They didn't even lose Kevin Durant until, what, Game 5-6? Like, there's, you know. So the 76ers won that series 4-1. By early NBA standards... This is just about as perfect as a team can be, honestly. In the playoffs, what Wilt Chamberlain takes a kind of step back and Hal Greer is absolutely unleashed. He's putting up these LeBron-esque 26-8-6 stat lines. He is cementing himself just below this Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, all-time kind of legendary backcourt figures of the era. Hal Greer is right behind them in my book as a kind of shooting guard, point guard. I think mostly in his career, he played shooting guard. For a couple of years, maybe he played point guard. But we're talking about a real all-time talent that's unfortunately been forgotten by history. But he absolutely destroys this playoffs. And he is really the perimeter threat that takes this team to the next level after the rock-solid foundation that Wilt Chamberlain's building. Chet Walker is also a very lethal scorer. He would eventually actually go on to the Chicago Bulls and be kind of their key scorer. He would have a very, very good career. Here he is a tertiary piece, and that just tells you how deep this team is. Will Chamberlain, as I said, he hits this perfect point where he is scoring at an all-time high level. Even though he's only taking 14 shots, he's putting up 24 points. Unbelievable the amount of value he's adding there. He is an all-time facilitating season for a big man. Eight assists. He's putting up a stat line, just so you know, 24, 24, and eight. That is just about, I think, as balanced and perfect a stat line as you could possibly put up. Um, and he is realizing his talent 
as a defender. I think Will Chamberlain is more underplayed as a defender than he should be. I think he's actually a much better defender than he is an offensive player. I think, again, if he was in the right system, utilised properly, maybe pulled out of his own head, pulled out of his own ego, we could be talking about unquestionably the greatest defensive player ever and a very good offensive player to boot. Unfortunately, it only happens this one year. Fun fact, actually, Alex Hannum, Hannum, the coach of the Philadelphia 76ers in 1967, he's also the guy who coached the 1958 Hawks. So Bill Russell only lost two series, a playoff series in his entire career. He lost them to the same coach nine years apart. History is funny sometimes. One other fun fact about this year, in the 67 finals, they go up against the San Francisco Warriors, as they're known at the time, with a young, young Rick Barry, like a age 22 Rick Barry. In his, I want to say his second season, he puts up 40 points in that finals loss. In six games, he puts up... 40 points as a 22-year-old in 1967. If you don't know, in 1967, a lot of 22-year-olds weren't even in the league. So go Rick Barry. I hope I get to talk about him more in depth in later pods because I think he's a fascinating player, underplayed in the all-time small forward discussion. And I think one of the best that have ever played and one of the greatest players of the 70s. When And... It's so sad that we didn't get his whole career in the NBA in that context where we could really look at it without all this switching from the NBA to the ABA. If we could just get his career in the NBA and really analyze it that way, that would be, apart from maybe like Dr. J or a full Connie Hawkins or Sabonis career, because we did get the whole Rick Barry career. We just didn't get it where we wanted to get it. And that makes me a little bit sad. Anyway. Oh, wait. Again, forgot to do final plus minus for the 76ers. Final offensive plus minus percentile. 95th percentile ever. Defensively, 98th percentile ever. If you remember back 10 hours ago, I said their regular season defensive plus minus was 80th percentile. Yeah, they get to the playoffs. They... Fuck shit up in the playoffs. They absolutely tear teams apart. And that drags them all the way up to a final defensive percentile of 98%. Very, very close to the greatest defensive teams ever. And a very well-balanced team like we're talking about. 95th percentile offensively, 98th percentile defensively for a final plus minus plus 8.4. Now we are talking like... Wow, level. Now we are talking about a generational team level for a final plus minus percentile of 99%. They are in the top, top ranks of teams ever. And one team actually beats them. First team, best team of the pre-merger era, the 1971 Milwaukee Bucks. You're welcome, Steve. That Milwaukee Bucks team, regular season, 
99th percentile offensively, 7th best regular season offense of all time, 93rd percentile defensively, so very, very good, and overall percentile in the regular season, 100%. The greatest SRS regular season ever, the 1971 Bucks. As I said earlier in my little spiel, don't totally buy that comparing to the Chicago Bulls, the Warriors teams, etc. I don't totally buy that, but that is what it says. So I'm just going to relay that to you. They are the greatest regular season team ever by the percentiles. Now, this team, I think, is actually quite interesting because we have this kind of this triumvirate of Kareem, who is... I mean, I'll, I'll get into more later about Kareem. But if you don't know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is quite good at basketball. You also have this older Oscar who is, by this point, most likely quite weary of carrying the Royals, what are now the Sacramento Kings, for a decade or so with very little success. I mean, what a conference finals appearance maybe is as good as he's done. He's really an MVP. He's a great, great player. We're talking about, you know, apart from him or Jerry West, is the great perimeter scorer plus facilitator up to this point in NBA history. We're talking like the first 25 whatever years. Oscar is probably number one. If it's not him, it's Jerry West and Oscar's number two. But I think Oscar is probably number one. And... Finally, in this triumvirate, we have Dandridge, Bob Dandridge, who, looking at him in kind of what available film there is, is very interesting because he has he has this weird kind of one-handed jumper where it's like he's got some range to it. It doesn't look like it stretches that far beyond the foul line, but he's definitely not afraid to shoot it. He's got a little bit of a handle for his size. He's a small forward. He's quite quick. He looks he's long, gangly good defensively, and for that team, I think in some ways, in some ways, he's a very different player, but he fills a similar role to what James Worthy would fill in the Showtime Lakers a generation later with Kareem, where obviously Magic is playing like a supercharged Oscar Robertson. Kareem is no longer the GOAT-level player he is right now, but he is still Kareem fucking Abdul-Jabbar. I think they, what they cobbled together in 1971 is quite similar to that. And a little interestingly, in that 1969 draft, the Milwaukee Bucks pick up Kareem with the first overall pick. With the, I believe it's the 45th pick, I believe I did look this up. I can't remember if it is the 45th pick. It is exactly the 45th pick. Well done for remembering. They pick up Bob Dandridge. So you want to talk about nailing a draft? The 69 Milwaukee Bucks has to have to go down as one of the biggest nails ever. I mean, picking Kareem, number one, is no-brainer. You know, that's picking LeBron in 2003. You know, don't, you know, you don't get extra points for that. You just, you're just lucky you had the number one pick when this guy came around. But picking maybe the second, third best player in the draft as well with the 45th pick, what a draft. Well done. That's why this team became what it did, I believe. So Oscar, this is Oscar's first year with the Bucks. 
He just gets dropped in with these two second-year stars who would go on to have great careers. Kareem, obviously, but Dandridge would still go on to have a great career. I think he was like a four-time All-Star, very good player. And he, um, Oscar takes on kind of more of a defensive responsibility. His defensive metrics show that a lot more of his value was coming on that side of the ball. And I think a lot of that is because he's taking on a kind of secondary scoring role while still being maybe the greatest perimeter offensive hub to that point in NBA history. And that balance strikes gold around Kareem. And Kareem, if you don't, if you haven't seen young Kareem on those Bucks teams, if you haven't seen what is available out there, do yourself a favor because Kareem in those teams is unlike anything I've ever seen before. I tried to think of how can I describe what I'm seeing when I'm seeing Kareem. The only thing that really sticks out to me is graceful, lithe. He's incredibly proportioned. He's incredibly coordinated. When you're talking about a 7-2 player, he's listed at 7-2. And obviously there is inflation, deflation in the eras. We can never be sure exactly what Kareem's true height was, but he is well over seven feet tall. And he does not look like other big men. Like Wilt Chamberlain looks like Goliath. Um, Bill Russell has this very jagged athletic build. You know, Shaq is Shaq. You know, this just mountain of a human being. David Robinson looks like he's carved from like, like by a Greek sculptor. Kareem doesn't look like that. Kareem is obviously, he's quite muscular. He's an athletic person. But he's skinny, he's long, he's a bit more kind of bouncy, he's a bit more, he looks more like a kind of, I think Anthony Davis might be the best um, comp for him, certainly in the modern era. They're very different players. Kareem, I think, is far more skilled. Maybe Giannis, maybe a far more skilled, less athletic version of Giannis is how I would describe Kareem. He's... He's he's anomalous in NBA history. It's it's tough to say he's a generational talent or a once in X amount of years talent because there has never been another Kareem. We could say there's been another Wilt. There's been Shaq. We could say there's been another Jordan. There's been Kobe. You know, there's levels to this, but you know, there's a Jordan. There's Dr. J. There's a Connie Hawkins. There are players like this, David Thompson. There are players that fit these molds somewhat. You know, we, we have to twist the mold a little bit maybe, but it's not a, a square peg into a round hole. For Kareem, there is absolutely nothing like him. And this team really reflects that because they there's not really a way to say how dominant they are in the regular season. I mean, if you go on to there, there's, there's what they lost, I think two games by more than 10 points or three games by more than 10 points all regular season. So, and most games they were blowing teams out by more than 20 points, legitimately blowing teams out by more than 20 points. They finished first in offense, first in defense. Obviously they went into the playoffs, stormed the playoffs, destroyed the Warriors in round one, 
destroyed the Lakers in round two and finally destroyed the Bullets in the finals. And in that, we're talking about them going up against, we're talking about Kareem going up against Nate Thurmond, Will Chamberlain, Wes Unseld, three defensive juggernaut centers, and Kareem absolutely makes mincemeat out of them in this first year. Kareem is, I'd say he's just kind of playing with no fear, almost. He just comes in, he's just like, I'm Kareem fucking Abdul-Jabbar, try and stop me. You can't. I'm unlike anything you've ever seen before, and they can't. And that's the story, I think, of the 1971 Milwaukee Bucks. They had this player. They had, you know, LeBron. You have to remember as well, Kareem is coming in a bit older. He's finished college. He's, what, 23, 24 at this point. I think 23. Yeah, I think it's 23. He's coming in. He's Imagine if you had LeBron or Jordan fully formed at 23 years old with an almost perfect cast of second and third stars around them. Imagine how good that would be. Imagine like the 24-year-old 2009 LeBron. But instead of just being 2009 LeBron with like Anderson Varejao, you're talking about the 2009 LeBron with Dwight Howard and like Dwayne Wade or Chris Bosh or... Darren Williams, you know, just insert probably a bit below a couple of the, no, he's definitely not a Wade, Bob Dandridge, but slot in a kind of an all-star level player from 2009 and slot in like a top 10 player from 2009 and stick them on with LeBron James in 2009, where he really ascends to this level. That's kind of what's happening with the 1971 Bucks. And we're just seeing absolute magic happen. For the final, final, final time, their numbers. Final offensive rating, percentile, 96th percentile. Very, very, very high level. Defensively, 99th percentile. Actually, the 16th best defense ever. And the 66th best offense, if you want to know. So we're talking about both sides of the ball as I touched on with the Boston Celtics, where, you know, they'd have an average offense, all-time defense. This Milwaukee Bucks team, we're talking about, you know, nearly a top 50 offense and a top 20 defense in NBA history. Unbelievable levels. Uh, final percentile, 99th percentile, obviously. They, they are on the top 10. I'm not going to tell you if they're top five, top whatever. They are a top 10 team, obviously, of all time. Final plus minus plus 9.1. Remember, the Philadelphia 76ers in 67 were plus 8.4, and they were second best, and they were a level above the 72 Lakers at plus 7.7, and suddenly we jumped up to 9.1. Like, we are, there is absolutely no question that the 71 Bucks were better than the 72 Lakers or the 72 Bucks or whoever else you want to put in from this era. They are a step above anyone. And yeah, after that little gushing bit about the Bucks, after I've been shitting on them for however long now, I've been shitting on the Bucks. Steve's going to be happy hearing this. I don't think he knows which team is going to come out on top of this. I haven't told him or Brett how these rankings go. I imagine they'd figure the Kareem Bucks are going to 
figure somewhere in this list. I don't know if they would assume two teams would make the top five, but maybe they would. Let me know, guys, if you actually did when you're listening to this. And that is the episode. We reached an hour and 20 minutes. I can't believe I thought this would be under an hour. Honestly, I'm, I'm shocked. I hope you've enjoyed. Please subscribe if you haven't. There are a lot more of these coming. If you've enjoyed this incredibly nerdy deep dive, I promise there are so many more of these coming. I have so much in the works and I really want to get these out to you every week if I can. There are a lot of work to do. So if you have enjoyed it, thank you. And please let me know. Please rate the pod, leave a review, subscribe. If you want to leave a review, please say how handsome that British guy sounds. That would really make me happy. Uh, go listen to more episodes of the Overstated NBA show wherever you find podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Join our Facebook group. If you're not on Facebook, make a Facebook just to come join the group. We have a lot of fun there. We talk a lot of basketball all the time, every day. Uh, there's a guy in there called Chase, wonderful guy. He's do He does live streams. There was a live stream. I'm in England, so I'm... Obviously, they do these live streams at night in America. Very unfair. They did one a couple of days ago. The scene looked like a lot of fun that obviously I couldn't jump on because I was asleep catching my beauty sleep because you got to stay beautiful. You got to shout out to everyone who's enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening. Have a fantastic day and I will see you next week.